0: What are some things that are conveniences of life that are now what you would consider essential to life? Microwave, Microwave okay? Microwave is pretty essential. Water. What did we do 30 years ago? Cook food. Cook food. <laughs> Good point. Okay, what else? Bottled water. Bottled water. Thank you, Don. <laughs> Air conditioning. Air conditioning. Do some of you remember when we did not have air conditioning in the sanctuary here? And on a day like today, it was really interesting because as as you stood up here, all you saw was this constant movement uh, of worship folder. Worship folders were in uh, hot demand. We could have sold them. And um, but air conditioning, what would we do without air conditioning? We, We were in the middle of a heat spell and two nights ago, about three in the morning, our air conditioning went out. And decided it just started cycling on and off, on and off, and, and burning up, and, and so we, we took care of that. But then yesterday, the kids were like, "What are we going to do? We can't live without air conditioning. How are we going to sleep?" And I'm thinking, we did this for years. This is this is we haven't had air conditioning very long, but to them, all their life, we've had air conditioning, and so it's a it's something that's part of life. A convenience that's part of life that they can't imagine without it. Two more things. Cell, cell phones. Internet. Cell phones, a convenient that we should get rid of? No. Um, <laughs> internet. I remember automobiles. I don't remember life without automobiles. <laughs> but I remember without <laughs> cell phones and internet. And they, they are so a part of our culture and so a part of the fabric of our lives that the next generation won't even understand life without them won't even get the concept of what if I can't go online. Anyone have a set of encyclopedias in their house still? Uh, A few of you do. It's called the internet, internet, yeah. You know, not that many people buy a whole set anymore. And so there's things that have become part of the fabric of our lives. As we go through this part of Colossians, and as we, we read what Paul is writing to his granddaughter church, he is talking about what it means to be in Christ. What it means to live a life that is saturated by Jesus Christ and His work and who He is. And over the last few weeks we've looked at some very practical examples of how to relate with each other. And Paul is giving instructions for how the community should be in relationship with each other and how, what attitudes we should have toward each other. Today we're just going to look at two verses. And Paul moves to saying, okay, what does it look like to make devotion to Christ part of the fabric of our lives? What does it mean to invite Christ in to the very sacred part of our lives, to to the part that we come to worship here on Sunday, but then throughout the week, the spiritual side of our lives? And the question that we come to today and, and Paul answers for us is, is our walk with God, is our relationship with God part of the fabric of our lives? Or is it an add on? Is it something that's essential that we wouldn't know what life is like without it? Or is it something that we add in occasionally throughout the week and throughout the day? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17 today. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. We want to talk about how do we make Jesus part of our lives? How do we really live in Christ and be radically changed because of what he's done? Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I'd like to read those. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As we break down and and dig into these two verses, there's two main points this morning. One for each verse. And as we look at verse 16, the first point of how we make Jesus part of our lives is we need to make the, we need to make Christ's work and word at home in our lives. We need to make Christ work and word at home in our lives. Verse 16 starts, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's so much that we can unpack there, but let's just take it phrase by phrase. The first word is word of Christ. And usually we read word of God or or a different um, way of expressing this, but Paul specifically uses the word of Christ Because he's talking about what it means to be in Christ. What it means to have Christ affect our lives. And so when he says the word of Christ, he's speaking very specifically about the message of Christ. Why did Christ come? What did he teach? What was his purpose to be with us here on earth? And his purpose was to seek and to save those that are lost. His purpose was to bring salvation, to bring redemption that we could not earn on our own. And so when we say, let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, we're saying, let the work of Christ, let His Word, certainly all of God's Word is included here because it contains, it's about Christ, it contains the message of Christ, it's the story of Christ and what God has revealed to us. And then the next phrase, dwell in you richly. The word for dwell we've talked about means to live in, but it means to make yourself at home. To, to be at home. Isn't it interesting how how we can move into a place and not feel at home? How many of you have moved recently? Anyone? A few of you have moved recently. What does it take to start to feel at home in your new place? Does it just happen first night? No. What does it take? Any ideas? Anyone can answer that, not just the people that have moved. Unpacking to, to get your life back. Organ, organization. Getting things set. Pictures on the wall. For me, one of the first things I always did was put some pictures up and play some music that I liked. Your dogs are happy. Your dogs are happy. Okay? Getting to know your neighbors. And so all of these things move us from saying, okay, I'm just living here, to I'm at home here. See the difference? There's times that you maybe have house guests over, and maybe as you're, you're leaving, you say, make yourself at home. Okay, now, now, I'm not sure we really mean that. Because if we came home and found our furniture all sold, and new furniture in, and, and things moved around, we'd say, okay, I didn't mean make yourself at home that much. But what we mean is to be comfortable with, to be comfortable in, to feel at home in. And that's the word that Paul is using here when he says, let the word of Christ dwell, be at home in your life. Now think about some of those things that that make a house a home, that make us feel at home, and think about how do we make God's word and the message of Christ feel at home in our lives. Can it be just something that we we casually think about maybe five minutes a week? It's hard to feel at home if you're never at home, right? I, I can remember in college, I, I spent most of my time, I was, I was living at home the last two years and sleeping at home about six hours a night, and the rest of the time I was at college. It was hard to feel at home there because I was never there. Same is true of God's Word. If we're never in God's Word, if we never if we never dig into it and read it and and consume it, it will never be at home in our lives. It can't be. It can't be. Paul uses dwell in you richly. Richly gives the idea of abundantly or fully. When we think of being at home, being with our family, we think of Just wonderful times together, don't we? Good memories. Playing games together. Doing activities together. That's dwelling together. Being at home with each other. So Paul here is saying, God's Word, the message of who Christ is, should be at home in your life. Let it infiltrate every part of your life. Let it be who you are. To do that, we have to read it. We have to to study it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. It's why we have the rooted readings. Every month you see that little bookmark come out. And it's a chance that we have as a church to be reading through God's Word. To be handling it well. Next quarter we're going to be doing a Sunday school class with all of the the adults. And it's, it's called Playing with Fire. And it's based on a book by Walt Russell that talks about how do we study God's Word? How do we handle it well? How do we make it part of our lives? But it's hard sometimes. See, to make it part of our lives, we have to read it, but we also have to obey it. Mark Twain said, Most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture that they cannot understand. But as for me, I have always noticed that the passages in Scripture which trouble me most are the ones I do understand. Isn't that true? The ones that we read that we understand, but we struggle to apply. So Paul starts out, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Make Christ work in His Word at home in your life. And he goes on in verse 16 there to give two ways that show that we're making God's Word at home in our lives. Two evidences of that. Two things to work on. The first, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We show that the Word is part of our lives when we include it in our conversations. When we include it in our speech and how we interact with each other. Teaching and admonishing. Teaching is more the positive side, isn't it? Giving instruction, telling people what they, some information, imparting some information. Whereas admonishing tends to be the negative side. It's the idea of correcting, of warning of certain behaviors. But in all these things, he doesn't say just go around teaching and admonishing. This is in the context of Let the word of God, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And he qualifies it by saying, Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. See, part of what we do, part of what we are to do, is to make God's word central to who we are. As a church, we've chosen to make God's word central to our time of worship. To teaching God's word to studying through books of the Bible, to making sure that as we study, it is always firmly rooted in God's Word. And that's one of the things with teaching and admonishing here is it's to be firmly rooted in God's Word. Otherwise, it's just my ideas. It's just man's wisdom. If you go to someone and say, you know, I need to to teach you something that God has for your life, and you never go to God's Word, you're just sharing your opinion. But when we come to God's wisdom... When we come to His Word, then then there's power behind that. When we see the phrase, in all wisdom, Paul also is qualifying that as we come to each other and he's taking everything that he's just talked about, about our attitudes towards each other and attitudes of love and forbearance and forgiveness, he's saying, use wisdom when you talk to each other. Ask questions like, is this the right time to talk to this person about this? Am I the right person? Ways that you can tell if you're the right person are, number one, do you have a relationship with them? Or number two, are you an authority over them? If not, you're probably not the right person to even address this. And so wisdom guides how we teach and admonish one another. But what's interesting is this assumes that we know God's Word well enough to teach and admonish one another. Think about your conversations. Think about the conversations we have together. How often are they just peppered with God's Word? How often does Scripture make it in? Now, we may have a lot of other things that make it in. Maybe Dodger statistics or angel statistics or what happened. But but how often does Scripture make it into our conversations with one another? If we're to let the Word of God, Word of Christ, dwell richly in our hearts, then it's a part of the fabric of our conversation. We can't help but say, hey, you know what? God's Word says this about this. Or uh, that reminds me of this verse. It should be part of our normal conversation. And I'm convicted by this because I don't think, but for the most part, God's Word is part of our normal conversation. People will think we're weird. But it should be. It should be. And so when Paul says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. He's saying we do that through the Word of God. We do that through His truth. And the second half of that verse comes to worship and how we sing and how we handle music. And worship in a broad sense includes all of the ministry of God's Word. It includes all of our life given to God. But here Paul gets very specific with some of the aspects of music that were happening in the church. So let her be there. We show that the Word is part of our lives by thankfully worshiping together. By thankfully worshiping together. We have to understand the context of this verse is in Colossians 3 where he's talking about community life. And all of the us that you see there are plural us, And so he's talking about as a community, as a church, God's word should should infiltrate everything you do. As a community, singing and worship should infiltrate what you do. So we see the second half of that verse, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Familiar Corresponding passage in Ephesians 5, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul here is tying worship to the ministry of the word. And his point is, if God's Word is dwelling in you richly, if the work of Christ is making a difference in your life, you won't be able to stop worshiping. You can't help but have it flow out and spill out. It's like carrying a full bucket and going for a jog. You're going to spill water everywhere. And and when we have a full bucket of the work of Christ, when we are amazed that we are forgiven, when we are astounded by the grace that we have been given, we can't help but worship. And here Paul is talking worshiping and song because song has a way of expressing our soul that nothing else can. Song bypasses a lot of other things and, and, and that can be good, that can be dangerous for, for how we let media and how we let entertainment in, but song has a way of expressing our soul like nothing else can. And so Paul says singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I'd like to to spend a a moment on this section and, and just talk as a family. Talk as a church family. Because worship and music in the church is one of those areas that is rending the church in America. Tearing at the fabric of the church in America. I praise God that we have been civil here about music. But there's churches that have split over issues of music, and that's often called the worship wars. And my heart breaks, because I've led worship here for for many years, and and now as the pastor, I, I, I hear the comments. And my challenge for us this morning is to spend a moment and think about what God's Word says about worship, because there is no place for worship wars in God's community. There is no place. Because it is a deliberate attempt, I believe, of Satan to attack the church and to steal worship from God. To steal worship from God. Now, I know full well from my conversations with probably half of you here that I am treading on thin ice. Because music is the message, the the, the heart of the soul, it's the communication of the soul. And so when we think about music and when we think about what we want to see in worship, our soul steps in and and we, we hold these convictions deeply. And so I ask that we can still talk about it. That we can understand that it keeps coming up in Scripture. And why does Paul even bring it up in a church that is struggling with different traditions? and different people coming out of different worship traditions? Why does He bring up singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God? And I think the question that we need to each, every one of us ask ourselves when we come to worship is am I coming to worship God or am I coming to worship self? And we never consciously ask that question but our approach defines the answer. See, when we deal with issues of the soul in music, we are primarily dealing with issues of preference, of what reaches me, what touches me. But where most worship wars have gone is we've turned preference into biblical fact mostly I believe because of fear because if my preference isn't supported then I might lose how I love to worship and I understand that and I think God's Word speaks to that of how we should worship as a community so I want to spend a moment and ask, answer a couple of questions first what is worship because for us to understand how to come together as a congregation in worship, we have to start with what does God's Word say about worship? That has to be the foundation. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so what is worship? The, the word most often used in the New Testament for worship in the Greek is proskuneo. And it means literally to prostrate oneself before a deity or before someone that is elevated. I'm not going to do it here, but it would be laying down here. And and worship in Scripture always has two parts to it. And this is instructive for what good worship is in the church. The first part is it always elevates God. Elevates God. It acknowledges who God is, His nature, His attributes, His ways, His work. If worship isn't elevating God, if worship isn't God-focused... If As we pick songs, if they aren't bringing us to who God is in, in an amazing way, then we're struggling with this half of worship. We're not honoring the, the instruction to elevate God, to give glory to God, to bring awe to God. The second half of, of what the wording in the New Testament uses for worship is the concept of a response to God. That's the the bowing before or being prostrate, prostrate before. And worship always includes a personal response to who God is and what He has done. We can spend all our time thinking about who God is, and if we never respond to it, it's not worship. It's knowledge. And so worship always has both of those actions. Now, personally, some of you will be drawn to the first, some of you will be drawn to the second. Some songs stress the first a little bit more, some songs stress the second a little bit more. But worship involves both, and a good worship service has songs that do both. The personal response is one of devotion, one of reverence. Sometimes people say, well, we don't like songs that have I in it or me in it. The the, the difficulty with that... eyes are okay in worship. Me's are okay in worship. The challenge is, where are they directed to? Two-thirds of the Psalms have me language and I language. Because it's not that I can't talk about myself. It's, am I talking about myself in direction toward God? Does that make sense? And so when we sing a song like, I love you, Lord... And I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul rejoice. That song has some eye language, but it's all clearly directed to a, a, a bowing before God and a response to God and giving glory to God. So worship always elevates God. It always is a personal response. But What are some principles for corporate worship? How do we tell if songs are good, if songs are bad? How do we decide a mix of songs that will best help our own congregation worship? And that's challenging. It's much more complicated than people think because of the number of preferences in here. I used to joke on, on worship team, if there was five people on worship team, I'd say there's at least ten different opinions of what songs we should do. And that's about Right. And in, in, in this congregation, over over 15 years, I have talked with most of you about worship and heard your heart music of worship. And it is all so different. And that's beautiful. It's how God has made it. So what are some principles for corporate worship? Number one, worship is an offering to God. Worship is an offering of God. The purpose is to give glory to God. Look back at verse 16, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts, it's the last two words, to God, to God. Those are key words. Worship is to God. It's not to myself. Worship isn't designed to make you or I feel better. It's designed to give glory to God. And there are, are times, and, and, and I will just say this right up front, there are songs in every genre of worship that I think are good songs and are bad songs. And if a song is simply about me feeling better and, and, and never directing myself to God, then we've violated that worship is to God. And Paul here puts that in at the end. With thankfulness in your hearts, to God. Worship isn't about me. It's not about what I want. It's about how can I impress God? How can I honor God? Worship is for the worthy one. And so as we come to worship, as you come on Sunday morning and come to prepare yourself for a time of of worship and study of God's Word, the question is, am I coming to bring glory to God? And I'd ask that. So I'd ask yourself that question every Sunday morning: Am I ready to give glory to God? Am I coming to be about His desires and not mine? Worship is an offering to God. Point number two: Songs must be in line with the teaching of Scripture. Songs must be in line with the teaching of Scripture. There is no excuse just because it's music to compromise good theology and to compromise Scripture. Paul uses the word singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And the word spiritual there actually is after all three and modifies all three. And he's saying, sing psalms, hymns, and songs, all of which are guided by the Holy Spirit. And this is all under the category of let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so make no mistake, Paul is not bypassing Scripture. He's saying worship comes from Scripture. No song is sacred. Only God's Word is sacred. In my heart, I would love to see more and more songs being used directly out of Scripture. There's something that is incredibly special about that. Not that we shouldn't and do others an example of this and i'm sorry if i pick on some of your favorite songs um, the song above all and we've sang it here before and at the end of the song it talks about that that jesus hung on the cross and he died and he thought of me above all think about that theologically is is it about me or is it about his glory did he redeem us to himself for us or for his glory? For his glory. And so on that particular song, we changed that line because that line was bad theology. So no song is sacred, but God's word is sacred. We have to be willing to take any genre of music and say, is this in accordance with Scripture? Number three. Songs, and this flows out of number two, songs should have a clear and understandable message that points to God. Songs should have a clear and understandable message that points to God. Our focus is the message of the song. Powerful worship comes when people understand the message well. And the message points to God. And so there's times that if a song is... Is is just something that's not even clear. We, if we if we keep singing a song, we're like, I don't even know what that means. Then then we either need to explain it and make sure we know what it means, or we need to not do the song. Because worship is about a message that honors God. It's interesting. I was reading a, a biography of um, a, a songwriter, uh, a worship songwriter, and. He goes through what he was talking about his life, and he was the son of a deacon, grew up in the church, and he can remember the day that he was talking to his dad, the, the deacon, and said, Dad, I love church, I love worship, but we've got to do something about the music we're singing. And his dad, interestingly enough, could have said, Son, you just need to deal with it. You need to come in line. Instead, he said, well, then why don't you do something about it? why don't you write some new music? And his son, a little taken aback, is like, okay. And he went on to to write a a whole new set of music. And one of the principles of, of how he wrote music is that the words should be understandable. The words should be that that the common person could understand. And he took some common melodies that were a little simpler than what the church was doing, some words that were a little more understandable, a little more updated, and, and he, he, he created worship music for his generation. And I was reading through this and I thought, wow, that is incredible. Because that person was Isaac Watts, who went on to write over 500 hymns. And if his dad hadn't have said, son, why don't you do something about it, we wouldn't have a song like Wondrous Cross. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We wouldn't have Joy to the World. Those were songs that he wrote to try to bring people into worship in an understandable way. And he was copying Luther's premise as Luther also tried to bring language of the common man and and put it to music that people would listen to. So songs should have a clear and understandable message that points to God. Four, and this is, where, this is where the challenge comes in. A variety of styles gives a healthy opportunity to put others first. A variety of styles gives a healthy opportunity to put others first. Read what Paul writes. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, there's a lot of overlap in those words. Sometimes those words are used interchangeably. But those words definitely had a core of different styles of music. And so Paul is coming to the church and saying, you have different styles of music, sing them all. Sing them all. This is an opportunity for you to bear with one another, be patient with one another, forgive one another. See, the Psalms, from the nearest we can tell from other writings, the Psalms probably referred to the Old Testament Psalter. The 150 Psalms that we have in the Old Testament. And for them, that was tradition. That was what you sang every year. That was the, the, the history of music. And Paul says, don't abandon the history. Don't abandon the rich heritage. The hymns, that was a word that was used for the new music that the church was writing at the time. And they were taking some contemporary melodies and, and, and contemporary experiences and responding to God. And so they wrote hymns. We have examples of that in Philippians 2, 6-11. Colossians 1, some of the early hymns of the, of the Christian church. And then spiritual songs is, is a little bit more troubling for me because it referred to Just sacred songs. Songs that that were just about living for God and about Christian life. Songs that I probably wouldn't put in a a worship service. And Paul says, sing these things in Ephesians to each other. Here, the the context is community. And whereas we, we can't know, we don't have a song list for each of these What Paul is really pointing out is a rich variety of worship. A rich variety of worship. Some of these songs were used by Gentiles. Some of them in pagan worship and words were changed. But I think what Paul here is saying is, will we put others first? Because we're worshiping God, will we put God's body, the church, above ourselves? And man, that's where it gets hard. That's where it gets hard. Philippians 2, a familiar passage, but turn back to Philippians 2, verses 3, 3 4, and 5. Philippians 2, 3, 4, and 5. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to show how Christ was a perfect example of this. And if we come to worship, and if we're going to come to worship as a body, that verse needs to be the top of our minds every week. How do I honor one another above myself? How do I put others before myself? There's a lot of different strategies to deal with worship in America. And some of what I'm sharing this morning is what we've chosen to do as a church. But one of the strategies is to separate different services. To have a a contemporary service, to have a modern service, to have a traditional service. And we've deliberately chosen not to do that. Because I think we're missing the point when we do that in America. And we're missing the point to cater to our own desires instead of challenging people to love one another and to put others first. And the challenge is hard because there are so many different styles sitting in this room that there is no one song that everyone in this room likes. I can guarantee it. And so it becomes an opportunity to show love and care for each other. See, we each have a a heart music of worship. That heart music is going to be different for each of us. Some of it comes from familiarity. Some of it comes from music that was was instrumental in our lives when we accepted Christ. Music that was instrumental in our lives at, at significant times of growth with Christ. Musical style preferences. That all comes into our heart music of worship. And one of the things we we have to come to out of this and seeing the variety of this is understanding that the person sitting next to you, their heart style of music is valid and it is great. Even if it's not yours. Where we fall into sin on this issue is when we start saying my heart style of worship is what the church should practice and what everyone should practice. I was sitting in a, a missions class hearing a speaker one time, and he put it. I was trying to get the tape for this morning, I wasn't able to get it. And he put in a tape and said, I want you to hear what worship sounds like in this tribe. And he put on this tape, and it was awful. It was awful. Drums pounding, not even in rhythm, melodies that didn't seem to be in harmony with each other it was something i could never worship to and the missionaries were talking with this tribe and they said well do you like do you like the songs we brought you and translated into your language and they said well yeah they're they're okay they're good but when we sing the songs that we've written we cry it touches our heart and there's a heart music of worship and every one of you has a different heart music. And we as a church, I believe, should honor that rather than try to change that. And the challenge is how many different opinions or perspectives there are, all preferences there are to worship. I just started writing down a list of conversations I've had with people in the last year two years. Some people love to sing hymns. Some people love the majestic hymns, but not the newer hymns. Some people like more Fanny Crosby type of hymns and not the older majestic hymns. Some people like more recent camp meeting songs. Some people like new hymns, the modern hymns that we do. Some people like reworked hymns. Other people hate reworked hymns. Some people like to sing two verses of hymns. Some people like to sing all the verses of hymns. And I've had conversations with both sides. Some people really like more the 70s style of music, the Maranatha music, especially those that were from Scripture. There was a lot of things from Scripture. Songs like "I Love You, Lord" would come from that that era, the Jesus movement. If you remember that, some people really like the eighties to nineties, and have, as they list the songs they like, they like the contemporary worship. It was a different style from seventies worship. They tended to be a little bit shorter, a um, little bit simpler, but a little bit more more influenced by pop music. Hosanna Integrity is a company that that put out a lot of music that fits into that category. Some people come to me and say, I really like the modern worship. The the modern worship tends to be a little more complex from the 90s and maybe have a bridge and several verses. A little more reminiscent of, of some of the styles of the hymns. Some people like modern hymns. But even there, some people like more the Chris Tomlin style of worship where there's a full band and it's a full sound, and others like more the Hillsong style of worship that is, that is current. And the, the camps are very different. Some people have come and said that a lot of the, the worship music in the early 2000s is all old. Man, I didn't even know that got old. <laughs> where does the time go? Do you see the complexity of what God has brought together in His church? It's an amazing thing. And when when I talk with people, I often hear from every one of these categories, you know, Pastor Ron, I come and I probably only have one or two songs on a Sunday morning that really touch my heart. The rest are good and I sing them, but only one or two because we're trying to blend a whole number of those styles. And my challenge this morning is that I believe that's a good thing. I believe it's a good thing to come and only have maybe one or two that are, are really your heart of music. Because as I look around, one of the things I love about Village is we have people here from, from one or <laughs> just born to, to 90. And I wouldn't trade that for the world. I wouldn't trade that for the world. And so how do we blend those? See, there should be a mix of the new and there should be a mix of the familiar. I would argue that it's arrogant to ignore the richness of older worship music. It's arrogant to say, that was for a generation before me and I don't need that anymore. Because there is a rich heritage in songs that were written three, four hundred years ago and have survived the test of time. And when we ignore those, we are ignoring part of the history of the church, the tradition of the church. Familiarity is, is vital in worship. But yet, on the other hand, we need new music. And it's quenching the Holy Spirit to say we shouldn't have new music. As a matter of fact, it's commanded in God's Word to sing a new song. And so it's disobedient not to have new worship. Do you see the dilemma? One author said, Can we ever really say that all the songs about God's glory have been written? And so we somehow need to blend a commitment to the heritage and the richness of music, which includes hymns and some of the 70s and some of the 80s and, and some of the, the different styles we have with a response to God that is that is that is new. And we've chosen not to do very many new songs. You'll only see one new song maybe every two, three, four weeks because familiarity is essential in worship but there still should be opportunity for those new songs. And one of the challenges we have is we tend to view worship as two camps. What I like and what everyone else likes. Don't we? I do that. What I like and what everyone else likes. And we set ourselves up to be in conflict and be at odds with each other. But as you look around the room, there's a richness to what we like. To what we like. I know we're running out of time. I want to do a little exercise. I want to go through some of those eras of songs. And just someone say a favorite song. And and in a couple sentences, not a book, why that song is a favorite to you. Let's go chronologically. Let's take some of the hymns. What's a favorite hymn or two and why? How Great Thou Art. How Great Thou Art. I don't know who said that. Okay, back there. Why? Because, like we were talking about, focusing up, it draws me to where my focus ought to be. Absolutely. Good. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Why? Because it talks about the three persons in the one. Okay, great theology there. Trinity. It's also. Some of the wording of that song are directly out of Revelation. What we're going to be singing forever, so we should like it. <laughs> At least the message of it. <laughs> One more. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Why? Because God is faithful. He's faithful, and we can rest in that. Rich hymns, rich songs that we don't want to lose. What about '70s music? The battle belongs to the Lord. Why is that a favorite? Because anything you go through, God's the one that's going to fight it for you if you give it up, give it up to you. Amen. Good. <laughs> oh, what? What did he say? I thought that was a hand. Then you were really excited. Um, the battle belongs to the Lord. Um, a song we we sang back back a number of years ago because it reminds us that. That He is fighting for us. And that it is by His strength that we fight. What else? Awesome God. Awesome God. I remember when that song first came out. And, and being drawn into who God was and drawn into His throne and, and expanding my view of God. Good. We Go ahead. Because He Lives. Because he lives. That's, that's one of those transition songs. That was a Gaither song, wasn't it? Yeah, because he lives, reminding us of the power of Christ. What about more 90s contemporary music? Any favorites there? I don't know if that's represented much. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Absolutely. Reminding us to look forward to heaven and what life would be like. Better is one day. day. Shout to the Lord. Better is one day, right out of Psalms, talking about how how good it is to come together and worship. Shout to the Lord. It's Hillsong in the, the mid nineties. Audience of one. Audience of one. Okay? Reminding ourselves that worship is good. What about some of the newer music, modern music, or some of the modern hymns? Any favorites there? Jesus died my soul to save. I heard that. Yeah. Do you know know that's a new song? But the the richness of the theology is incredible. And it's what we would call a new hymn. It's written as a hymn. What else was over here? How deep deep the Father's love for us. Amazing song. You are good. good. Grace like rain. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. I have a funny story within Grace Like Rain, um, or with, with Grace Like Rain. We, we sing every night with our kids, and one of the songs that Susie and I sang just about every night was Amazing Grace. And they heard Grace Like Rain once. And they came home that night, and we started to sing Amazing Grace. And they're like, No, 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 no. The other way. We're like, What? How did you hear that? And, and at first, Susie and I are like, Well, no, we, we like amazing grace but we saw their hearts and we sang it with them and they sang those same words at the top of their lungs and I was convicted I was convicted that the message is what counts now sometimes we still sing amazing grace like Susie and I want to that's part of the body loving the body make sense? So we have a variety of worship worship styles and worship music. Worship is an exercise of humility to each other. I would challenge us when we come to worship and when we hear a song that we're like, oh, that just doesn't do it for me. Why are we doing that song? Instead of thinking that, think, who in this congregation might that be helping to glorify God? That's where we start to put each other's preferences above our own and to love each other and care for each other. And so sing out, even if it's not a song you like, because you may be helping the person next to you worship. The fifth point there is worship is to be characterized by thankfulness and joy. Paul ends that verse by saying, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. And he reminds us that an attitude of gratitude toward God is part of worship the enjoyment of worship, realizing what God has done in our lives is what spans all kinds of different worship styles. On Sunday morning, do we get up and on our way to church, do we start listing things that we're thankful for? It will change your worship. Or are we complaining about a number of things? And so my challenge is two things there. We need to call preferences preferences. And that's okay. And we need to outdo each other to show honor to each other in worship. Outdo each other to show honor to each other in worship. Knowing that no one here is loving every song. The final point, and I want to go through this quickly because we want to end by singing two songs together. Verse 17, Consider everything you do and say an act of worship to Christ. Consider everything you do and say an act of worship to Christ. Verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And Paul here, he's culminating this, and he hasn't wanted to give this list of this is what you should do, and this is wrong, and it's not a list of do's and don'ts. With this verse, he gives us two tests to decide is this something we should do. It helps us with gray areas. It helps us decide how to how to live. And the first test is: Am I doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus? Am I doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus? And He's not talking about some incantation. Okay, I'm going to eat Taco Bell in the name of the Lord Jesus. He, he's talking about when, when the when the the word name was used. It was used as one that would represent you. If you took someone's name, you were representing them. If a boy came in the room to assess the boy, what would they ask? Whose father have you come from? Who's your father? And that would help define, because the name meant something. And so when we see an instruction in whatever you do or say, do all in the name of Jesus Christ, it's saying, how is what I'm about to do or say representing Christ? How is it representing Christ? Am I representing Christ well Or am I harming his reputation? And the second test there is the test that's been in verse 15, 16, and 17. Does what I'm about to do or say show thanksgiving to God? Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Does this show thanksgiving to God? Lord God, You are God. You are holy. We are in awe of You. You sent Your Son and through Your blood You saved us. You reconciled us to Yourself so we could sit at Your table and not be condemned to eternity in hell. Lord, what can we do but worship? Lord, I pray for us as a congregation that we would be worshiping You by honoring one another. Lord, no matter what the genre of music is that we like, that we'd be seeking each other out and finding out why songs are special, why songs are meaningful. Lord, that we will worship as a body in all the different styles we use. I thank you for this congregation, for their willingness to sing out, to sing their hearts out in worship to you, no matter what the style. Protect us as a church that worship would be solely about you. In Jesus' name.